Welcome to the Verity Podcast for August 23rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Trump confirms plans to turn himself in in Georgia. Cambodia's outgoing prime minister is replaced by his son. Wagner's chief vows to make Russia even greater. The U.S. urges its citizens to leave Belarus. The U.N. reports over 200 slain former Afghan officials since the Taliban takeover. Japan is set to release treated radioactive water. Biden visits fire-ravaged Maui. A judge considers the future of Texas's buoy border barrier. Biden names a new White House counsel. And eight are rescued from a trapped cable car in Pakistan. In our top story, Trump plans to turn himself in in Georgia on Thursday. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, PBS NewsHour, CBS, BBC News, and Reuters. Former President Donald Trump on Monday confirmed on the Truth Social platform that he plans to turn himself in for booking at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta on Thursday. Hours after court papers set bail at $200,000, Trump posted about going to Atlanta to be arrested. The bond agreement also forbids Trump from intimidating co-defendants, witnesses, or victims, including on social media. After a two-year investigation by Fulton County DA Fannie Willis's office, Trump and 18 others were indicted last week on state felony charges in relation to the 2020 presidential election. On Tuesday, John Eastman and Scott Hall, two co-defendants in this case, turned themselves in. Eastman, a lawyer who represented Trump during the effort to challenge the election results, was released on a $100,000 bond. Hall, a bail bondsman facing charges related to a breach of the voting systems in Coffee County, signed a $10,000 bond agreement. Trump, who holds a substantial lead in the polls for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, has been indicted four times since the end of his presidency, including federal charges brought by special counsel Jack Smith related to the 2020 election. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric just laid out all the facts for us. And now for the pro-Trump narrative from One America News. Joe Biden, the Democratic Party and the Department of Justice are continuing their witch hunt to derail Trump's certain victory in the 2024 presidential election. Former President Trump hasn't done anything wrong. And these charges, like the ones in the other indictments, are all part of an attempt to drown a political opponent in legal actions. Counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from CNN. This case is the most perilous for Trump, starting with the strict terms of his bond deal that aimed to crack down on the social media attacks he's made in the other cases. This is the first time he'd had to post cash bail and be fairly treated based on these criminal allegations. If convicted of state charges, there would be no chance for him to pardon himself if he regains the presidency. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by Metaculus.com. This time, they predict there's a 50% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. Next up, Cambodia's parliament elects the longtime ruler's son as their new prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, Reuters, The Guardian, The Associated Press, NBC News, and Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, Cambodia's National Assembly unanimously endorsed the four-star general Hun Minet to succeed his father, the outgoing Prime Minister Hun Sen, who ruled for nearly four decades. 
This comes as Hun Sen anticipated that his eldest son was to take over as prime minister shortly after his Cambodian People's Party landslide electoral victory in July, in which Hun Menet won his first assembly seat. While the election was widely criticized for lacking any prominent opposition to the ruling party, Hun Manet described it as a free and fair election in his speech after being appointed prime minister. He also praised his father, who has pledged to remain in politics and has expressed a desire to become president of the Senate next year and the older generation of politicians for their leadership. The Western-educated 45-year-old new leader has previously served as head of counterterrorism, deputy chief of Hun Sen's bodyguards, army chief, and deputy military commander in Cambodia. Further new faces in Hun Menet's cabinet consist of T. Seheya, replacing his father, T. Ban, as Minister of National Defense, and Sar Soka, replacing his father, Sar Keng, as Minister of the Interior. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is a narrative A coming from Asia Times. This reshaped youthful cabinet led by a U.S. and U.K.-educated individual may lead to a thawing in tensions with the West, offering Cambodia the opportunity to reshape its policies. With tourism damaged since the pandemic and Chinese investment below domestic expectations, there is a chance, albeit a small one, that the country may change its direction. And Narrative B comes from Nikkei Asia hopes that the Western-educated Hun Manet will reform the police state his father built or even abandon its vital alliance with China are completely delusional, as Hun Sen will continue to pull the strings as head of the ruling party. Cambodia won't change while this regime stands and this family remains in power, so the West should define an effective strategy to defend its interests and security. All right, Eric, so two of the greatest leaders in history were the sons of also the, the prior leader who would have a measure of greatness. You have Eric the Red's son, Leif Erikson, and then you have Philip of Macedon's son, Alexander the Great. Okay, that's two. So is this going to be the third? What do you think? I think it is. Wagner chief vows to make Russia even greater. And here are the facts as agreed upon by RT International, BBC News, CNN, the Kiev Independent, Reuters, and Guardian. In his first video address since leading an aborted mutiny in Russia in June, Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin has claimed he is working hard to make Russia even greater and to help Africa become even more free. In the video, shared by a Telegram channel linked to the Russian mercenary group, Prigozhin claimed his troops are exploring for minerals and making life a nightmare for Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and other bandits. Prigozhin, who appeared armed and dressed in military garb, holding a rifle in a desert area, stated that Wagner is conducting surveillance and search operations and hiring ancient Slavic warriors to fulfill the tasks that were set before us and that we promised we would handle. Prigozhin's video message comes amid reports that over a thousand Wagner Group mercenaries have left Belarus over a, quote, lack of funding from Russia and have reportedly signed contracts to fight in African countries. The latest video has emerged just a month after Prigozhin offered Wagner fighters services to bring order in Niger, as he congratulated the country's military coup leaders for, quote, gaining their independence and getting rid of the colonizers. Meanwhile, Prigozhin is reportedly inviting investors from Russia to put money into the Central African Republic, where his fighters have been accused of committing human rights abuses, 
through Russian House, a cultural center in the African nation's capital. Well, thanks for that rundown, Eric. Bloomberg brings us the anti-Russian narrative. Branding Prigozhin a traitor and sending him into exile in neighboring Belarus were plainly false flags intended to deceive the West, expand Wagner and Putin's influence in Africa, spark a major regional crisis, and enrich the backyards of the Russians with illicit business deals. Follow that up with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. There is no evidence that Prigozhin is continuing to move in and out of Russia, or that this latest video was filmed in Africa. After all, criminal charges against him and the Wagner fighters who participated in the mutiny were dropped. Moscow considers the Prigozhin era over. And once again, we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 13% chance that Vladimir Putin will declare martial law in at least three quarters of Russia before the year 2025. And in a related story, the U.S. urges citizens to leave Belarus. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the U.S. Embassy in Belarus, Radio Free Europe, The Washington Post, and Reuters. The U.S. on Monday urged Americans in Belarus to leave the country immediately. Following suit from a similar advisory in April, the U.S. Embassy in Minsk said that citizens should depart immediately and told Americans to use the remaining border crossings with Lithuania and Latvia or travel by plane. The development comes after Lithuania closed two of six border crossings with Belarus last week. Poland, meanwhile, closed all but one border crossing earlier in the year and announced the transfer of 10,000 troops to the border last week. In a statement, the U.S. Embassy cited the recent developments, adding that the Polish, Lithuanian, and Latvian governments have stated that further closures of border crossings with Belarus are possible. Further reasons given by the embassy included Belarusian authorities' continued facilitation of Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine, the buildup of Russian military forces in Belarus, the arbitrary enforcement of local laws, the potential of civil unrest, the risk of detention, and the embassy's limited ability to assist U.S. citizens residing in or traveling to Belarus. The warning was classified as a level four risk, the highest possible warning which comes under the title, Do Not Travel. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The Washington Post has something to say about it with their pro-establishment narrative. Americans Belarus currently face heightened risks, including increased chances of arrest and the possibility of not being able to leave the country if hostilities break out. This is a serious warning that should be immediately listened to and acted upon. And the Belarusian Ministry of Foreign Affairs brings us the establishment critical narrative. The situation in Belarus is safe and stable. These are politically motivated developments aimed at giving the impression of a dangerous situation, even though that couldn't be further from the truth. And we have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculus Prediction Community. They say there's a 52% chance that Russia will significantly incorporate Belarus into the Union state before 2030. Vacation plans, Eric? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm looking at Airbnbs as we speak. According to the UN, over 200 former Afghan officials and soldiers have been killed since the Taliban takeover. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, ABC News, Al Jazeera, Radio Free Europe, and Associated Press. The UN is reporting that the Taliban has conducted more than 200 extrajudicial killings of former Afghan military members, law enforcement, and government officials since seizing control of the country two years ago. 
The UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, or UNAMA, released the report on Tuesday, claiming that the alleged 218 killings were part of at least 800 human rights violations by the Taliban, including enforced disappearances, arbitrary arrests and detentions, torture and ill treatment and threats. After taking over Afghanistan on August 15, 2021, the Taliban immediately pledged to grant general amnesty to the country's former officials and soldiers. However, the new leadership allegedly proceeded to commit around 100 killings in its first four months in power. Another 70 were reportedly killed in 2022 before slowing down in 2023. The UNAMA report covers the period between the Taliban's takeover to June 20, 2023, and documents more than 424 arbitrary arrests of former officials and soldiers and 144 instances of torture and mistreatment. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, called the report a sobering picture of how the Taliban treats individuals affiliated with the former government. While the Taliban remains unrecognized by many countries, the report claims it operates with impunity. Meanwhile, the Taliban's chief spokesman denied the UN's allegations, claiming that the Taliban government has kept its promises of general amnesty. He added that the Taliban are investigating some, quote, personal and unknown cases of revenge attacks. Thanks, Eric. Human Rights Watch brings us Narrative A on this story. The UN's latest report is another example of the Taliban's brutality and abuse of power to silence its opponents. From promising to grant amnesty to former officials and soldiers to pledges of advancing women's rights, the Taliban has done nothing but lie since taking over. Western countries should hold the Taliban accountable and continue to not recognize this illegitimate government. Narrative B comes from Kabul Now. The UN's latest report is a gross misrepresentation of Afghanistan and the leadership of the Islamic Emirate. The Taliban has overwhelmingly abided by its promise of a general amnesty and has made numerous positive developments for the Emirate. While there may have been personal instances of rogue officials abusing their power, it's not representative of the state. And once again, we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they say there's a 47% chance the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan will be used as a base for terrorism against a NATO nation by the year 2026. Japan is set to release water from the Fukushima plant. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the International Atomic Energy Agency, France 24, CNN, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. Japan is set to begin releasing over 1 million metric tons of treated radioactive water from the tsunami-hit Fukushima nuclear power plant starting Thursday, despite ongoing controversy over the plan's safety. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced on Tuesday that the disposal will begin on August 24th if weather and sea conditions are appropriate. The government claims the release is a key part of its extended and expensive efforts to decommission the destroyed plant. Highly radioactive water used to cool the reactors has been stored in the plant's tanks since 2011, but space is running out. The water to be released into the Pacific Ocean has been treated to remove the most dangerous elements. However, it still contains radioactive tritium, a hydrogen isotope. In July, a detailed review conducted by the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, found that government plans met the required safety standards, but their conclusion that the release will have a, quote, negligible radiological impact on people and the environment has failed to dampen opposition. 
China already bans seafood imports from 10 prefectures in Japan and imposes radioactivity tests on imports from others. There have also been protests against the plans in South Korea, while local fishing groups fear reputational damage to their industry. According to Japan's government, the Fukushima water will be released at a maximum rate of 500,000 liters a day, at which rate it will likely take decades to complete. Those are the facts, and we begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Reuters. A more accurate understanding of the plans to discharge Fukushima water is starting to prevail internationally. The IAEA has thoroughly assessed Japan's intentions and confirmed that the release would have a negligible impact on the environment and human health. The only contaminated element left in the treated water will be tritium at a concentration well below internationally approved levels. Neighboring countries and industry heads must stop fear-mongering over these plans. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Washington Post. This release could result in a significant blow for a fishing industry already dogged by the stigma of radioactivity. South Korean opposition leaders have accused President Yoon Suk-yeol of disregarding the health risks posed by discharging radioactive waste for the sake of diplomacy. Pushing ahead with these plans will likely backfire on Japan's government, hurting the nation's image abroad while making relations with China more challenging in the near future. Metaculous Prediction Community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 30% chance that there will be a major nuclear accident before 2030. Turning our attention back to the United States, as Biden's Maui visit has been met with anger from some residents. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, New York Post, Newsweek, and CNN. Almost two weeks after wildfires hit the Hawaiian island of Maui, leaving at least 114 dead and roughly 1,000 still unaccounted for, U.S. President Joe Biden made his first visit to the island, sparking anger from some residents who said he should have been there sooner, while others welcomed him with the shaka, a common Hawaiian greeting. Protesters greeted Biden at Kapalua Airport on Monday with jeers and placards, including signs that read, quote, no comment, referencing his response when asked about the rising death toll last week. Others compared the amount of money earmarked for survivors compared to the amount given to Ukraine. Prior to his arrival, the White House issued a statement defending the federal response, which said, quote, My heart, my prayers, and my focus are on the victims of the Maui wildfires and their families. Adding to that, he knows nothing can replace the loss of life and that he will do everything in his power to help Maui. The statement also said that the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, had 450 officials coordinating the response on the ground, adding that the agency had shipped in around 50,000 meals, 75,000 liters of water, and 10,000 blankets for survivors. He and First Lady Jill Biden also took an aerial tour of the devastation by helicopter before traveling to Lahaina, among the areas most badly hit. There, Biden spoke near a surviving banyan tree, saying, quote, Today it's burned, but it's still standing. Trees survive for a reason. I believe it's a powerful, very powerful symbol. Sparking further criticism from some, Biden also said he could commiserate with survivors because years ago, firefighters had to rescue his wife from a fire in their home in 2004. However, the local fire department said that fire was insignificant. However, the local fire department said that fire was insignificant because it was contained to the kitchen and had been put out quickly. All right, we have some political narratives on this story, Eric. PJ Media kicks us off with the Republican narrative. 
Biden completely dropped the ball during his overdue visit to Maui. He inappropriately compared the hardship of families who have lost everything to a small kitchen fire at just one of his many homes. And his administration has offered just $700 total to people who are now homeless. The federal response has been far from satisfactory, and the local residents are quite right to have questions of their commander-in-chief. We counter that with a Democratic narrative from CNN. Biden has been dealt a tall task in overseeing the devastating aftermath of Maui's wildfire and the criticisms that are unfounded. The work to arrange an immediate presidential visit would have taken away from the necessary recovery efforts, and Biden has shown his desire to help the community as a whole and console the individual victims on the ground. While he may face criticism from those who already didn't like him, his compassion and decency were certainly on display in Hawaii. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict there's a 60% chance that Joe Biden will be re-elected president of the United States in the year 2024. A U.S. federal judge will decide the future of Texas's border buoys. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Roll Call, Democracy Now! and the Associated Press. U.S. District Judge David Ezra was scheduled Tuesday to consider the Department of Justice's lawsuit against the state of Texas over the floating barrier the state has established at the U.S.-Mexico border. The buoys, which are the size of wrecking balls, were installed in July on the Rio Grande River, and the Biden administration is seeking their removal. This case could hinge on the interpretation of part of the Federal Rivers and Harbors Appropriation Act, which requires a federal permit to build structures in U.S. waters that are, quote, navigable. The DOJ says Texas did not seek a permit or seek approval from the Army Corps of Engineers before installing the barrier. However, Texas says such steps are unnecessary because the waters aren't navigable. This case is one of several legal challenges to Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star which is an attempt by the state to secure the border. Texas also recently had to reposition the barrier, which Mexican officials said had been installed on their side of the river. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Begin our round of spins with a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. These cruel and dangerous buoys are just the latest part of Abbott's illegal attempt to localize dangerous approaches to immigration law enforcement. Neither Abbott nor any Republicans seem to care about the humanitarian crisis the buoys and other tactics are causing, and their accompanying anti-immigrant rhetoric is stoking the flames of white supremacy and putting the country at risk. And PJ Media brings us the Republican narrative. If the current administration won't protect the southern border, then Texas is well within its rights to do whatever it takes to keep it and the country safe. If Democrats are so worried about an alleged humanitarian crisis, they should discourage migrants from attempting the dangerous journey to the U.S. from wherever they're from. Woke, leftist immigration policies are the real danger for America, not attempts to bolster barriers to illegal entry. President Biden names his new White House counsel. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, New York Post, Politico, and the official website of the White House. U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday chose Ed Siskel, a former Obama administration attorney who helped craft the response to the congressional investigations into the 2012 Benghazi attack that killed four Americans, to be his next White House counsel. Siskel also helped the Obama administration handle lower-stakes House Republican investigations, such as federal loans to politically connected solar panel maker Solyndra, which went bankrupt in 2011. 
Since then, he has worked with an attorney for the city of Chicago and chief legal officer for a private equity firm. While serving under former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, Siskel, who is replacing Stuart Delery, was known for targeting corporate criminals and defending immigrants. Most recently, he represented Gross Venner Holdings, LLC, owned by major Democratic donor Michael Sachs. In a statement, Biden praised Siskel's many years of experience in public service and a career defending the rule of law, and touted Siskel's time in the Obama administration and ability to deal with complex challenges. Siskel will now oversee Biden's response to two special counsel investigations, his alleged mishandling of classified documents, and his son Hunter Biden's business dealings, while managing requests for certain documents, such as Biden's personal bank records from congressional Republicans. Biden's personal attorney will remain Bob Bauer, who is representing the president on the same issues, but in his personal capacity. Thanks, Eric. The New York Post brings us the Republican narrative. As more and more evidence piles up against the Biden family, the president is going to need all the corruption-loving legal defenders he can find. Now that Congress and even the Democrat-friendly Justice Department are both pursuing criminal and political charges against the Biden family, the dishonest media can only try to spin these scandals in a positive way. And of course, we're going to counter that with the Democratic narrative coming from USA Today. House Republicans, without a shred of evidence, are hypocritically targeting Biden. After complaining about Nancy Pelosi's cautious inquiry into former President Donald Trump ahead of the 2020 election, they have now decided to float the idea of impeaching Biden just 13 months before the 2024 election. Siskel is well-suited to take on these unfair allegations. And another nerd narrative, Metaculus says there's a 20% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the House of Representatives. And news from Pakistan as eight are rescued from a cable car accident. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Reuters, BBC, and CNN. On Tuesday, a military rescue successfully saved six children and two adults trapped in a cable car hanging over a ravine in northwest Pakistan, saving the lives of all eight. The dangerous rescue operation brought a joyous end to the tense incident. Earlier in the day, when one of the connecting cables snapped, the cable car was transporting the children over a river ravine on their route to school in the Batagram district of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. Six hours after the malfunction, military helicopters were dispatched to begin rescue efforts. Gusty winds further complicated helicopter rescue attempts, yet rescue operations conducted from ground-based operations yielded a successful outcome. Floodlights were installed for the ground-based rescue operation, which was characterized as complex and requiring a high degree of skill by Pakistani officials. Many in rural areas of Pakistan rely on cable cars for transportation, with the prime minister ordering all dilapidated and non-compliant chairlifts to close immediately in the wake of this incident. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from NBC. Now that this harrowing rescue has been concluded with the best possible outcome, it's time to investigate the cause. Prime Minister Anwar ul-Haq Kakar has demanded that authorities begin safety inspections on all similar privately owned chairlifts to ensure that such an event doesn't occur in the future. And narrative B comes from the New York Times. This significant incident is just a glimpse into the vulnerable and precarious situations that the people living in remote Pakistan face each day. Tens of thousands of people live in these areas and lack the very basic necessities for transportation, education, health care, and other life-sustaining services. 
No investigation will ever be complete without taking this context into account. Did you see there was a video that someone recently posted? I think it was fairly new. Someone went down a water slide and they had like a GoPro on them, but the bottom of the water slide was filled with water and they got stuck. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's so they got it's so. no, thank you. That's like my no, nightmare. No. I'm not gonna, yeah. Getting caught in a tube? No way. No. Mm-mm. Not going to do it. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on the Verity Podcast, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Verity Podcast.